Well, it is a blessing to be here, and I'd like to uh, introduce my topic. It says, In Danger from False Brethren, How the Insider Movement Affects Ministry, Personal Reflections. And this is a uh, small talk on some of the things that I've encountered as I've uh, ministered to Muslims. And I'd like to begin first with uh, some scriptures, and I, I've put them into three provocative titles, False Brethren, False Doctrine, and False Love. In 2 Corinthians 11:26, we have this passage that talks about the different dangers that Paul was in, and the last one he mentions was dangers among false brethren. And I think that it's significant that dangers in, is in the plural. But there is such a thing as false brethren, and that was the point of um, this uh, scripture and highlighting that. The second thing that I'd like to talk about is that there is such a thing as false doctrine, which um, uh, Dr. Talley uh, laid out for us very well. In Acts 20, 28 through 31, it says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Be, therefore, be on the alert. So this is stating that even from among those who are professing Jesus, that there would arise heresy or false doctrine. Uh, another scripture along the same lines, it says, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And there are two things I'd like to highlight from this, and that is, one, there's a danger that we can stray from Jesus Christ. I do not have the scripture there, but Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And we can never overestimate the fact that we are prone to deception. And that scripture actually ends with a question. It says, who can know it? If we are prone to self-deception, how can we figure this out? Well, that's the role of revelation from God. That's why he's given a scripture so that we can constantly come back to the right source and understand what it is that God wants for us. The second thing in this passage from uh, Timothy is that it says it's possible that we can preach a message that is not the gospel and it cannot save even if it is embraced. Again, I'm going to go back to that. He ties in watching your doctrine or teaching closely. Why? Two reasons. Because you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And so we see then that there's the possibility of us straying individually and number two, that the people who are hearing what we have to teach and say is not worth hearing. The last uh, thing that I want to uh, begin with, <laughs> that sounds funny, but is false love. And in the great passage in Leviticus 19, which gives us the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, beginning at verse 11, there are a list of specific ways of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we get to verse 17, it says, do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. And this is part of God's instruction of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the idea of false love is that so often we don't confront because we think it's unloving. 
And it is true that we can confront in an unloving way. And that's why Paul writes, speaking the truth in love, uh, and you can use other scriptures as well. But a, a love without confrontation, when confrontation is necessary, it ceases to be love. And that's the point that I'm making. And then it goes on to say, do not seek a revenge, revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. A few other scriptures about love, in, uh, one that uh, we often read, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. If there is no truth, if truth is not being upheld, we can, it, it can feel good, it can be emotionally wonderful, and it can be popular, but it's not love. Another thing is in Revelation 3.19, Jesus said, those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So again, if there, where rebuke is necessary, where discipline is necessary, if those are not present, then it's not true love. And then Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So again, honesty, where there, when it comes to issues of correction, has to be upheld. If we are to say that we love people, if we're loving people as we love ourselves, and we are fearful to confront where confrontation is necessary, if we are afraid to speak out when truth is at stake, then we have to question, we, we have to question ourselves. And here's the thing that uh, when it comes to being confronted, every one of us that has said yes to Jesus as Lord have been rebuked. God himself has gotten in our face, so to speak, and he has rebuked us, and we have said, yes, Lord, I acknowledge the rightness of what your, your judgment. And when, so the only way that we come to the Lord is by his rebuke to our lives. And it's, again, it's very easy to try to say, well, if you take a hard stand, it comes across as unkind, uh, harsh, and unloving. But we can speak the truth in love. And yes, there is no, sometimes there's no easy ways to get around something. And there's awkwardness, there's even tension. But in the end, in the end, we, will be, we are going to be the better for it. And it's not that we are looking to just put people down. It is for the sake that we would honor our Lord Jesus Christ and that, we, that we're showing genuine concern and care for one another. The first part of, well, let me uh, share a few quotes. Samuel Zwamer said, the chasm or chasm between Islam and Christianity cannot be bridged by rickety planks of compromise. Syncretism would be equivalent to surrender. Now, these, the, the entire quote is, is in the pamphlet, uh, and, and you can read it there, but that, that phrase there, syncretism, would be equivalent to surrender. And then it goes on to say, why? Another great quote from Samuel Zwamer is this, a passion for Muslim souls does not mean that we are to compromise or to conciliate at any price. And I really believe that the insider movement, for most of the people that I have met or encountered, 
that this is really the issue. You know, that they want to see Muslims come to know Jesus. They want to be compassionate to Muslims. But in our desire to see people saved, it cannot be at the expense of truth. So um, I, I was really happy to find that one and um, this particular quote, um, but it, it is so true. And God help all of us because uh, even, even those of us who um, wouldn't say that we're for the insider movement, there are times that we bite our tongues and we don't say what we should say at all, all the times that we should say things. So God help us all to be courageous and to be, love, and to be loving. There's no conflict within the Holy Spirit to help us to be both bold and loving. The, uh, my next point is what is being referred to as Muslim idiom translations of Scripture. And this takes me now to um, my first, or one of my very first encounters and perhaps my longest encounter with the insider movement per se. And that is with Rick Brown. Many of you are familiar with him. He is with SIL, and he has written quite extensively about translating the terms or the phrase son of God as well as uh, being a proponent and an advocate of what he refers to as Muslim idiom translations of the Bible for Muslims. And so you, you can uh, go to the archives, you put in his name and you'll find all kinds of things. That's uh, the SIL.org uh, webpage about Rick Brown. Again, all of this is in the book. He's, he, his um, main contention is that this, is that um, not surprisingly, seekers and believers from Muslim backgrounds regularly single out the term Son of God as the biggest obstacle to reading the gospel. So when you read his uh, papers, this is really the thing that comes out, and this is his reasoning. Muslims are offended by this phrase, therefore they will not read the Bible. Now, when, I've read, when I read this, I immediately asked the question, well, where is the proof? Where, where, are the, where are the surveys? You know, where is the proof of this? And even if he could present this, I have been ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ to Muslims since 1987. I do not recall one Muslim ever rejecting any scripture portion or complete Bible because they said, you know what, that book says son of God, you know, curses be upon you in that book, I don't want it. Now I've had Muslims, some Muslims refuse and say, listen, everything that I need is contained within the Quran. I, I don't need it. Or they'll say, it's a corrupted book in a general sense. But I honestly, I, do, I am not consciously aware of one Muslim ever rejecting scripture portion because of the term son of God. So this, again, it, it um, makes me say, what is this claim based on? As I've read Rick Brown's writings, there were five things that I'd like to highlight that I disagree with. And I, I've put the five there, and I'm going to go through these uh, um, you know, here on my notes. Number one is a disregard for the plain reading and interpretation of the Bible, especially the Gospels. When we read, for instance, in John chapters 5 and 10, it's very clear that Jesus didn't even call himself Son of God in those conversations. He simply referred to God as his Father, or he referred to himself as the Son. 
And it says that the Jews were angry, so angry that they wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him. And in John 5, he, uh, he says, well, why are, um, no, it's, maybe it's John 10. But he, in one of the places, he says, well, you know, why are you stoning me? For what good work are you stoning me? And they said, we're not stoning you for a good work, but because you, being a man, make yourself equal to God. And so what in the minds of the Jews who wanted to kill Jesus Christ, what they were thinking of, I assume, is Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5, in which it says, if a prophet or a, um, a, you know, a, a you know, person is raised up among you and he does a sign or a wonder and it comes to pass and then says, let's follow other gods, kill him. And so the Jews uh, who were opposed to Jesus were thinking, listen, all we can see is that you're a human being, you're calling yourself God, and get ready to feel pain. That's what they were thinking. So um, when Rick Brown states that son by itself in the Bible refers to son of man and does not refer to son of God, that is not, that's ignoring the plain reading of Scripture. A second point is, is that there is dependence on extra-biblical writings what I mean is not inspired. Rick Brown goes through great lengths showing all of, in, all of these intertestamental writings. Now, obviously research has a place, but if we're talking about the New Testament, what is the primary document to understand the New Testament? The Old Testament. And so that's... Um, that Rick, Rick Brown's contention that Son of God does not refer to deity nor does Son of Man refer to humanity, again, is uh, contrary to a plain reading of Scripture. And, and to sit there and say, well, I'm basing it on what somebody wrote in between the Testaments, that's shaky ground. Uh, and so a third point is he uses flawed premises. Rick Brown will say that Son of God is synonymous with Messiah. In fa- I'm qu- I quote, in most of the occurrences in which Son of God is used for Jesus, the usage is messianic, meaning the focus is on Jesus' role as Lord and Savior. Now, there is a flaw, uh, uh, he's, he's making a mistake here of saying that um, he's substituting reference for meaning. For instance, I am a father, I am a husband, I am a son, I am a, a nephew, I'm an uncle, I'm a teacher, I'm a clergyman, I'm, uh, I am these things. But they are not synonymous. It has the same referent, me, but it is, they do not have the same meaning. And it is also uh, ignoring the fact that throughout the Old Testament, God was constantly disclosing, revealing himself to people by different names. And so why would that shock us that God would do the same thing in the New Covenant? And then the fourth point I want to um, bring out is that there were incorrect assertions about Scripture. Again, I quote Rick Brown. Palestinian Jews understood the various senses of the phrase Son of God, but the Greeks did not use this phrase in the same ways. So Luke and Paul used the term very little in their writings to Gentiles. Now, I'm going to, I want you to see this. And again, this is in my pamphlet. There are 40 references to filial language between Luke and Paul. 
And filial, I mean whether they use father or they use son. So I, I'm not quite sure what Rick would, uh, what constitutes for Rick Brown as being a lot. At what point does little cease being little? And these are not just like all clustered in one chapter. So that's another thing that I find. Uh, and then the fifth point, accommodation to Muslim sentiment is something that I've already said. He uh, mentioned at the beginning when he said that Muslims won't read the Bible if Son of God is in there. Well, then what you're saying by the elimination of this phrase by other words then you're saying that it's in order to get Muslims to read the Bible, so the approach is pragmatic. It has nothing to do with translational principles. So that's something that um, I um, think about when I read Rick's writings. Temple Gardner was a great missionary to Cairo, Egypt in the early 1900s. Actually, he went in the late 1800s. But he writes, still undoubtedly, this doctrine of the fatherhood and sonship is an enormous stumbling block to Muslims. Their repugnance is so instinctive, so ingrained in their very constitution, that it may be really questioned whether Christians do well to give such prominence to terms which are so capable of being misunderstood and which were perhaps only used at the first to shadow forth the ineffable substance of eternal truth. If they only succeeded in doing the exact reverse of this, namely suggest error, why not drop terms of so dubious utility and seek fresh ones to shadow forth in a more fruitful way the truth, if so be, which lies beyond? If the whole point of terminology is to facilitate explanation, what is the use of terminology which itself needs so much explanation? Why not drop it? The answer to this is because we have no right to play fast and loose with expressions that God has sanctioned with such tremendous emphasis, because their continued existence in holy writ and use by his church are like the preservation and employment of a standard which we cannot afford to lose, depend upon it if this terminology were banished from religious usage today. A great deal more would go too. Sooner or later, the reality to which these expressions are a continual witness would be utterly lost sight of, and if the idea of the fatherhood of God were lost to us, many of us would lose interest in all religion. Bruce Waltke says this, God, not mortals, has the right to name himself. It is inexcusable hubris or arrogance to end idolatry on the part of mortals to change the images by which the eternal God chooses to represent himself. We cannot change God's names, titles, or metaphors without committing idolatry, for we will have re-imaged him in a way other than the metaphors and the incarnation by which he revealed himself. His representations and incarnation are inseparable from his being. So we cannot play games with what God has revealed about himself. A great understanding of Son of God, it was written by the late uh, Dr. Bess, and it's online. Again, the reference is in the handout. But he goes on to, in his conclusion and says, it is clear from the above that the New Testament uses the idiom, meaning Son of God, in the same way as the Old Testament, especially when indicating nature or character. We are not misguided then in applying this connotation to son in the term son of God. Since we are dealing then with a Semitic idiom, 
we can test ourselves for accuracy in the understanding of it as applied to Christ by observing how the Jews responded or reacted when Jesus taught concerning his relation as son to the father. They understood that when Jesus said God was his father, he was making himself equal with God and sought to kill him for it, John 5.18. At another time, when Jesus spoke concerning the father and son relationship, they accused him of blasphemy and would have stoned him because with such terminology, Jesus made himself God. And that's in John 10, 28 through 36. Now, the enemies of Jesus did not respond this way because they misunderstood this terminology, but because they understood him perfectly well. They knew that when Jesus said he was the son of God, he was claiming to be of the nature of God and equal with God. It was on this basis that they demanded his death in the trial before his crucifixion. We are to understand the expression son of God when applied to Jesus just as his enemies did. In 2003, I was forwarded an email uh, about um, a thing called Lives of the Prophets. It is an audio production of, of uh, the lives of different prophets from the Old Testament culminating in Jesus Christ. It's audio. And, um, it is, uh, and I got into a quite a long email exchange with Rick Brown. But... Um, these are some of the issues why. And again, if you turn to pages 13 and 14, you'll see the chart. Josh actually handed out this chart last night. Every time Son of God is uh, translated or, or rendered, I should say, because it's not translated, it's rendered as Christ, Messiah, which means the same thing. Uh, and then this is something that was very shocking to me when I first listened to this presentation uh, of the life of Jesus Christ. And just for information, they took the, the transcript of the Jesus film and then they modified it. Every place where Father is mentioned in this audio uh, production is, is rendered as something different. When I first read, when I first listened to this, I thought, okay, this is indicating to me that there's something up here. Why would Rick Brown argue for the ability to render Son of God or Son as Messiah, but he said nothing ever that I am aware of about Father? I might be wrong, but I, I haven't read it. He has, so if we are to even grant Rick Brown's argument, he has provided no justification or reasons why father should not be rendered father. The irony of this is that I have met Muslims and I know of Muslims from their testimonies where when God is referred to as father, they don't have this anger. It actually provokes in them a curiosity. How can somebody be so close and intimate with God? And I simply refer to Bilkis Sheikh. What's the title of her testimony? I dared to call him father. So um, this is serious, serious stuff that does not point to translational issues, but I feel propaganda and an agenda. Rick Brown's last statement to me by email was this, no cardinal doctrines are at stake, only traditions about wording, and the wordings are just temporary, a bridge to the Bible. My second 
Uh, this one? Sure. Mm, yes, it is. My next thing that I want to talk about is this, this recent retranslation, as it is referred to, because uh, I, I would put translation in quotes, of the uh, Gospels and Acts into Arabic. It is headed by Mazhar Maluhi, and it is called the true meaning of the Gospel of Christ, or in Arabic, Al-Ma'na Sahih li Anjil al-Masih. This um, translation, uh, well, Mazhar writes this. He says, my passion is to see the scriptures put in the hands of Muslims in a form they can understand. In order for Christ to be naturalized among Muslims, I see it is critical that the scriptures be represented in a manner they can fully understand and accept. And we are going to see a lot of the things that Rick Brown argues for in his IJFM articles being put into this. And I know because of information that I have, that both a Wycliffe person and, or slash SIL, I use that in the generic sense, as well as a navigator's Arabist have been involved in this translation as consultants. I have email from the Wycliffe SIL person in question that he states we argued that Son of God would not be put into this translation. But his objections interestingly enough, were overruled by Muslims on this consultation committee. Now, again, we're seeing same thing. Every time that Father is in, in the Greek text, in, in this translation, it's always rendered as supreme guardian or God most high. Father is never rendered father in this quote-unquote translation. Uh, the Matthew, the Trinitarian uh, baptismal formula uh, is almost identical to the one in Lives of the Prophets where it says in the, in, in the name of uh, God and His Messiah and His Spirit. Notice also cleanse them. That is a different word than baptize. And that gives the idea to a Muslim of ablutions. It, has, it, it does not necessarily connotate to them identifying yourself with Jesus Christ. So these, this is what is presented in this translation uh, as it is so called. Here's another problematic passage, John 3.15. The NIV says that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In the Arabic, it says that everyone who believes in him receives his portion in Janet el khuld And for those of you who know Arabic, it means the eternal garden. And in, in, in English, I threw in the words of paradise so that it's clear to the English reader. What this does is it communicates two things. Number one, it reinforces the very physical, carnal idea that Muslims have of the afterlife. Number two, it totally hijacks the meaning of eternal life as something that those who believe, those who've been born again, they tap into it right now. It makes eternal life a reward in the hereafter only. This is extremely problematic. So this is what this particular production is doing, and they are producing an audio of it as well as going to continue with the rest of the New Testament. So 
I had put some things, some action points. We need to know what kind of materials are out there because I, I have been guilty of handing out the lives of the prophets without knowing what was on it. So these are, we need to know what is going on. And I would say if you are handing out scriptures in other languages, you need to check key terms, Father, Son of God, Son of Man. Are they translated uh, literally, word for word? Because if they're not, then you're dealing with a quote-unquote Muslim idiom translation. Another thing that I'd like to talk about is Pilgrims of Christ on the Muslim Road. Again, Mazhar Maluki, who is the head for that translation that I just spoke of, uh, he is... He calls him, he is a self-identified Sufi Muslim follower of Christ. Here are a few things that Mazhar says in an interview in the last chapter. I am not pulling these things out of context. He goes on to say that, um, and a number of things. When I hear the Psalms read, I, the God of Israel, this presents a tribal God. I cannot reconcile God ordering massacres in the Old Testament. I have met many Muslims who I believe are farther spiritually than me and a million miles closer to God, loving God and devoted God to God with complete sincerity. The difference Christ makes for me is that through his life and teachings, I am able to see the heart of the Father. The benefit of Christ is that we see the beauty of God through him. Without Christ, something of the picture of God is missing for me. Jesus just makes God a little bit more real to me than what Muslims have, but they already have what's really uh, in what we all need anyway. He says, if people do not have the revelation of God in Christ, this of course does not mean that they do not know God. I fully expect to see Gandhi when we are privileged to enter God's presence in eternity. And then if I understand correctly, he, he uh, misquotes Tertullian. In Tertullian's sense of the soul being naturally Christian, he views Gandhi as a natural Christian. Mazhar meets many Muslims who are in the same predicament. It is very hard for me to picture God whom I love and whom I know loves humanity, his creation sending anyone to an eternal hell. God is just, and if he treats evil with evil, then what difference is there between him and us? Now, this book and his life were reviewed in an Arab World Ministries publication called Seedbed. And um, the, the, article, the people in the... Um, the people who wrote the articles put their names to it. Greg Livingstone is the one who said this. He's an evangelist, not a theologian. Ch it's Chandler's portrayal of Muzhar's view of the Bible. And by the way, it is because of the seedbed, it, it is because of what I read in seedbed that I ended up writing my book review on uh, Pilgrims of Christ on the Muslim Road. And this is what I'm talking about, confrontation. I had been helping with my digitization of the writings of pioneer missionaries to Muslims. And by the way, here's a nice plug. There are some discs that I've brought with me. I was helping Greg because he was wanting research of missions work among Muslims from the time of Muhammad until the present. And I was gladly helping him and supplying him with materials. When I read this, I was like, Something, I, something's wrong and I cannot remain silent. 
This can, these kinds of things that we just read in Pilgrims of Christ on the Muslim Road cannot be dismissed so easily. We're not just talking about, well, you know, Pentecostals are, you know, really mistaken about tongues being the initial physical evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. As a Pentecostal, I don't believe that you have to, you need uh, to speak in tongues to be saved or to serve God and serve Him well. Okay, that's a negotiable. It is not negotiable of saying that hell is not real and that you can know God without knowing Jesus Christ. These are non-negotiables. So, because of my commitment to, to Greg and Muzhar and also two other people who wrote in the seedbed, both of whom I know, and they basically were like, oh, Muzhar as I remember him. If I were to write the things in Pilgrims of Christ on the Muslim Road, and somebody asked you to do, do a, a writing about me and about the book, and you were to write these things, I would hope that you would refuse to even submit an article and that you would get on the phone, shoot me an email, or come see me in person and say, Adam, we need to talk. What's going on? You know, what happened? You know, this is a failure to love our neighbor as ourself and to confront when confrontation needs to take place. I will also say this. Muzhar Maluhi has a quiet agreement with an organization. They are fully aware of this book, but they will not rebuke him. They will not dismiss him. They will simply not sell his book on their website. And this, again, it's in the book. Um, the responses, I'll skip that. Jesus in the Quran seminar. This was started by a man named Jamie Winship. He is listed as an associate pastor of a church in Wilson, North Carolina in the, the uh, clergy guide for the Southern Baptists. I went to a conference uh, last year at Kensington Community Church in Troy, Michigan. And the speakers uh, were John Stallsmith, Jamie Winship, and Matt Reynolds. This is what we were told. If we can radically change the conversation about Christianity versus Islam to the kingdom of God, we may say things that are a bit confusing to you. And in their workbook, they define Muslim as one who is culturally a Muslim regardless of his faith in Christ. Now, this is significant because what it's saying and what they argue throughout the conference is Muslim does not have religious meaning at all. There's no religious significance to the term Muslim. It's all cultural. And by the way, that you will find almost an identical definition in the Common Ground, which is, uh, was started by Kim Gustafson, a navigator's uh, missionary. This is what we were told. Muslims can enter the kingdom of God and remain a Muslim just like Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. Then we were, there was a soft sell, really a, a, a stealth operation of getting us to accept the idea that Muhammad was a prophet. He goes on to say, Muhammad was this, that, and the other thing. He went to a cave and began hearing from God according to the Islamic uh, sources. Muhammad was meditating in a cave. He heard what sounded like a bell and received his first revelation. And then uh, Jamie Winship, Muslims are like that too. They do not believe that God can speak to people in caves. Hey, Jamie said it again, caves are where God speaks. 
And um, then John Stallsmith concluded this conference by saying, was Muhammad a messenger from God? And then he interrupted his question and said, you know, I just got this wonderful report from a Muslim in Morocco who was reading the Quran and was led to Jesus Christ. And he says, in my conviction, I believe that anyone that points people to Jesus can be considered a messenger or a prophet from God. And there were about 200 people there, and the majority of them stood up and were clapping heartily. I, I was really, uh, it, was a, it was a very difficult, difficult time for me. Um, I will um, skip a few things, but uh, these, are, these are some of the sources of the insider movement, at least here in the U.S. But I want to say this, is that this, the insider movement affects every, or I believe every evangelical organization, including the Assemblies of God. I have been told that assemblies, there's, there's an Assemblies of God missionary, or was in Indonesia, that was doing, you know, going teaching in the mosque and who knows what else he was doing. So I am not saying that the Assemblies of God you know, my, my organization is free and clear from rebuke and reproach and, and, and that, that, that we don't need correction in some way. I've asked our leaders to take a stance and nothing's been done. So um, this affects all of us. But these are some of the primary sources of what is being taught in, here in the U.S., I have come with several, uh, I've, I've, I've written down eight things that I feel are th practices and beliefs that are incompatible with the Bible. Acknowledging Muhammad in any way to be a prophet of God. Acknowledging in any way that the Quran is inspired by God. Verbal confession of faith in Jesus Christ is unnecessary for salvation. Willful retention or addition of a Muslim identity, including such unbiblical practices as legally converting to Islam, advising professing converts from Islam to return to Islam. The repetition of the Shahada or Kalima, which is there is no God but God and Muhammad is his messenger. Saying the Salat, the five daily prayers, making the pilgrimage to Mecca. And changing any of the filial language in scriptures. And this applies to any and all who participate on projects undertaken by their parent organization or any other organization. Because for Wycliffe to sit there and say, we don't put this stuff into print, but to use somebody like Muzhar Maluhi so that they can hide behind their, you know, well, we're just, you know, we have a few people that are consultants, but that's not us. We're free from having any uh, a part in this is, is really uh, shady. The insider movement cl uh, claims that they want to turn regular Muslims into Muslim followers of Christ. Unfortunately, they are turning themselves and their proselytes into Christian followers of Muhammad. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. There are many scriptures and, and they're on your handout, the outline. God is a jealous God. Jesus said... No one can serve two masters. Regardless of what insider movement proponents and advocates say to the contrary, they 
What they propose, believe, and practice is at the expense of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Is a divided heart with divided affections the kind of offering the Lord of glory should receive? Can we so easily dismiss the master's razor-sharp words that no one can serve two masters? Will the jealousy of the Holy Spirit allow for spiritual infidelity? We often do not associate jealousy with love, but the Bible does. It is one of those aspects of love that remains hidden unless provoked when its burning flame becomes visible and its searing effects are felt. A lack of jealousy in light of rival affections can only indicate one thing, and that is a lack of exclusive commitment to that person. I'll say that again. A lack of jealousy in light of rival affections can only indicate one thing, that is a lack of exclusive commitment to that person. Those of you who are married, would you want somebody making eyes with your spouse playing footsies with your spouse, this is what I'm talking about. Jehoshaphat, I can't say his name, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat's legacy. He was one of the few godly kings. He not only sought God but on his own, but continued to serve God even when he was rebuked. He experienced one of the greatest supernatural victories over an army of enemy forces without even fighting. He died in good standing with God. Nevertheless, and I quote scripture, his help of the wicked and love for those who hate the Lord, specifically King Ahab and then Ahab's son Ahaziah, through marriage of his children and grandchildren to Ahab's family, led to the godlessness of both Jehoshaphat's son and grandson. And because of these alliances with Ahab and then later on with Ahaziah, Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram, and then his grandson Ahaziah, not to be confused with Ahaziah, the king of Israel, came under the judgment of God to the point that the royal line of David was almost extinguished. And that's in 2 Chronicles 22, verses 10 through 12. And that's when Athaliah, the daughter, daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, then tried, you know, took the throne and became queen for several years. In the same way, I am proponents, advocates, and tolerators who grew up in the, in the faith biblically orthodox, perhaps they're not apostate or lost their salvation, but their children and their grandchildren, meaning the succeeding generations who buy into this message will find themselves like Jehoram and Ahaziah, worshiping what is false and doomed to God's judgment. It is tragic that in the name of being compassionate to Muslims, I, Emmers, are actually leading them to God's judgment. As Samuel Zwemer wrote, a passion for Muslim souls does not mean that we are to compromise or to conciliate at any price. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name.